you guys have a really beautiful music this morning, and I hope you were uh, encouraged by it. I was definitely encouraged by it, so thank you guys so much for playing and, uh, and leading this morning. What a blessing it is to, uh, to sing God's praises and, and to, uh, to lift up his name collectively together. My name is Brooke Taylor. I'm the pastor of, a, of Missio Church in Ridge, New York. It is a blessing to be with you today. Uh, New Village has a special place in my heart. Uh, my first ministry 20 years ago coming out of seminary was here, and um, I have many dear relationships even this morning just looking around and talking with some people that haven't seen in at least 18 months, maybe longer in some cases, and uh, just a, a lot of joys to be back here, but a lot's changed since, uh, since I've been here in ministry. My wife and I have, are just uh, getting ready to celebrate 23 years of marriage. We have our oldest, who's a junior in college right now, or I guess just finished her junior year in college. Miranda, uh, Marin, uh, it graduates in just a couple of weeks, and so that's very nerve-wracking and exciting for us. And Audrey is starting her uh, junior year this coming fall, and just because we uh, are gluttons for punishment, we also have adopted a, a little girl who's six, and we're in the process of adopting a three-year-old little boy uh, as well. I had pictures, but Dave said the projector doesn't quite operate today. So if you'd like to see pictures, then you can come talk to me. I'm a very proud father with all the, all the photos I have of my children, but especially my one and only soon-to-be son. So uh, he has a special place in my heart as well. Um, thanks to Dave and the elders for letting me come today um, and to, uh, to share God's word with you this morning. Uh, our church is preaching through the book of Chronicles in the Old Testament. I didn't feel like it was fair to put you through that kind of purgatory this morning, and so uh, I've uh, chosen a different text, but... Um, but if you've never read through Chronicles, never study it, it is a wonderful book, and uh, you would uh, be deeply encouraged by it. I don't know if you've ever gotten a gift from someone. When you got it, you thought, well, I don't even know if this person even knows me, because the gift clearly doesn't pertain to me and have anything to do with me. I like to get gifts. I like to receive gifts. My, my birthday is in December. It's December 23rd, so typically I get one gift for both. I, I don't know that anybody else has that problem. Um, you know, if your birthday's in June, no one says, hey, let me take a picture of this gift and remember it at Christmas because I'm giving it to you now. Um, it's a unique problem to, to December babies. Uh, but one particular year, right after I got married, I was just married just a few months. My wife and I were living in Jamestown, Ohio. And I got this present, this big box from my grandparents. And I was like, well, this is going to be a great gift. You know, the size of the box was massive. The, the wrapping paper was immaculate. And we unwrapped it, and inside was a genuine 12-piece candle nativity set so that you could light every piece on fire, including the baby Jesus, and you could watch the whole thing burn up over the course of several weeks or months at your house. And, uh, and I, I didn't even know what to do with this. Like I was like, what do you do with a candle nativity set? It just seemed kind of sacrilegious, you know, to, to, to light up Jesus and the wise men and the shepherd. So I, I eventually gifted it as one of those white elephant gift exchanges, you know, where you take something you don't want, you give to everybody else, and then they fight over it. And believe it or not, a, a renowned seminary professor, a New Testament scholar, actually picked the gift. He wanted it to take it home, and, uh, and so I was very happy to, uh, to give it to him. Bad gifts can be a real letdown, right? When you get a, you're expecting a gift, and you get one, and, and it is not what you wanted or desired or expected, it is very disappointing. But the scriptures tell us that, that God is the, the giver of every good and perfect gift for us. He gives us exactly what we need and when we need it. He knows the right timing 
and the effectiveness of the gifts that he gives to us. And the church in Ephesus is one of, I think, the most important New Testament letters that we have in the Bible because it tells us a great deal about the nature and the purpose of the church. Ephesians chapter 1 and 2 tells us about God's grace, right? God's grace saving sinners through Jesus Christ and the marvelous work of salvation he accomplishes. And then, of course, in in chapter 2 and 3, we we learn more about God's redemptive plan and how the goal of the gospel, the goal of the work of Christ, is to build us up, he says, into God's holy temple, representing God and making God known, and basically assuming all the Old Testament purpose, function, and mission of the temple in the people of Christ. And of course, we're told in chapter 3 to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The end of chapter 3 talks about a letter, a prayer letter from Paul that wants the church to be reminded of the height and depth and breadth and length of the love of Christ to transform our thinking. And then, of course, chapter 4 transitions into a little bit less doctrine and more action, less information and more obedience. And chapter 4 tells us about gifts that God gives to the church and the gifts that God has given to New Village Church to help you be what God has called you to be and to enable you to be on mission and to take responsibility for the community that's around you and to see the advancement of his kingdom and the church across the globe and how you can be a blessing and a benefit to others and for the glory of God and why all these gifts are available to you even though currently you are waiting patiently for a physical earthly leader to lead you. The gifts that God gives to you are not merely, though, meant for your own personal enjoyment. They're not meant for your own personal use. He gives you gifts for the benefit of others and the glory of God. So if you have a Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. And if you would just stand with me as I read for us um, a section of this this morning. You can follow along as I read. It says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high... He led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, with each, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow 
so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ who has reconciled us to you. And thank you for not saving us to be alone, but to be connected with other Christ followers for your glory, for our good, and for the benefit of other people. And help us to love the church like you do, to love the people that are here like you do, and to serve others in this church as Jesus Christ has modeled. Give us a passion for others, for their benefit, for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There's a couple of things I want you to see this morning. Four, I think, in particular. Four gifts that God has given to you as a church right now, right where you are. And the first is the gift of unity, not uniformity. The gift of unity, not uniformity. We tend to replace unity, both in the church as well as in uh, larger society, with a cheaper imitation called uniformity. In our own sinfulness, we we expect everything to be and to act and to look just like we would. We want everyone to conform to our standards, to us and to who we are, to who we think we are. And that can even happen in the church where followers of Jesus Christ can expect or demand both new as well as older Christ followers to become uniform, to do everything the way that we've always done them, to not introduce new things, whether it's music or ministries or opportunities, to, to keep the things exactly the way that they have been, to keep the status quo. If you, if you want to come in, you must become uniform. And our pursuits of uniformity, I think, cause us to actually fight against the very God-given diversity that is good in the church. We are being made into God's new people, Paul says. We are being built up into his temple. But his temple is crafted out of a tapestry of diverse people. And within this diversity, God has given us a gift of unity. And Paul urges us in the first six verses here to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that's in Jesus Christ. And I think the calling is found in the middle of chapter 3 where he says that we are called to make known the manifold wisdom of God of Jesus overcoming the hostility and making us into his temple. That's our calling. That's what we're to be doing. And we're to walk worthy of that. And so how does Paul want us to walk in the unity that he has given to us? He says that we're to walk in humility. We understand better now in Christ who we used to be outside of Christ. We were strangers, Paul says, and aliens, dead in our sin, and who we are now in Christ. We're friends and citizens of his kingdom, and we've been made alive in Christ. And because we as individuals are totally dependent upon God through the work of Jesus Christ for our salvation, this humbles us. Because we recognize that we are no better than anybody else, and we are all equal at the cross and equal in salvation. Pride in the church destroys unity because it directs attention to ourselves and to our priorities, thinking that we are more important or better than everybody else around us. When I am humbled by the gospel, I am more willing to prioritize other people. I'm willing not to be in the limelight. I'm willing to treat other people with kindness and mercy, no matter where they come from or what they look like or what ethnicity they are. Humble people are able to focus on the needs and concerns of others more than themselves because that's exactly what Jesus was like. 
Paul says we walk in humility. He also says we walk in gentleness. When we get impatient with others, we tend to be harsh and sarcastic and bitter. And it all flows from an attitude of self-focus and self-worship that we prioritize ourselves most. I remember one of my first sermons out of seminary, and I had finished preaching, and after the sermon, someone didn't like what I had said. And so rather than come to me and gently correct me, they made a beeline to the back of the auditorium where I'm waiting to shake everybody's hands and tell everybody hello and say goodbye for the week. And the person let me have it, not in gentleness, but in wrath. Because why? Because I didn't conform to what they wanted that moment. And they prioritized themselves and their own views and their own uh, preferences rather than prioritizing the individual. If we are confident in Jesus, when our circumstances or our relationships are di difficult, there will be a gentleness in our actions and in our words and responses to people because we are not worried about self, because we're worried about unity. Ruthless and harsh people, those in fits of rage towards others, those who throw insults or objects at others, are only caring for themselves in pride. But followers of Jesus are called to be gentle towards others, even in the most difficult situations and scenarios, because we trust God more than we trust or fear our circumstances. We can be patient with difficult people because we trust God to protect us and care for us. We can be patient with hostile spouses because Jesus is our greater spouse and he was patient with us. Our own desires and timings become secondary. We don't quickly retaliate when wrong, and we learn to defer in gentleness to other people. We are patient with others because we understand and know the patience that Jesus has already shown to us in the gospel. When we are impatient, we communicate that we don't believe or understand the gospel because Jesus was gentle. Paul says but we're long-suffering, meaning we bear with other people in love. I, I've been around the church long enough, and maybe some of you have, have experienced this as well, to know that one of the most glaring characteristics lacking in most followers of Christ is long-suffering. Because what happens is when we don't get our way, when people don't do what we want, we give up on them. And we leave a relationship or a church in a huff because we want what we want. Or if we don't get what we want, we cut people off out of relationship and we give up on them. Perhaps just hoping and forcing their hand that they would want to break relationship because we're too proud to want to do it ourselves. So we, we leave it at their footstep to, to do it. Either way, such a response is not in accordance with the fruit of the Spirit that calls us to be patient and long-suffering, to walk in love with people. The description of love in 1 Corinthians 13 is, is not merely about husbands and wives. It's about all of us towards the body of Christ in particular, modeled by the love of Christ. Love that's patient and kind and not rude and keeps no record of wrongs and bears all things and hopes all things and believes all things and even believes the best of Christ in a person that is in the pew next to us that sometimes drives us crazy. Because we understand that they are not finished products, that God is still transforming them and sanctifying them, bringing them to completion in Christ that will one day be perfect. 
And so we can look towards the future with people that have shortcomings or failings because we know that God isn't done with them any more than he's done with us. And we do this, we seek gentleness and long-suffering and patience and humility to maintain unity. We don't create unity. Unity is not something that we create. It's created in Christ through his work on the cross and by the power that's in us. We seek it, though, and we pursue unity. And we're willing to sacrifice and maintain it and walk in it and do whatever we can for the sake of the unity of the body of Christ. That doesn't mean we ignore issues. If there's a, an issue that needs to be confronted, then we do it. But we do it in truth and in love. We don't confront because we think we're right. We confront because we love the person. When we have a person we don't think likes us, or a person that has a different taste than us, or a person that has different priorities than us, we maintain the unity of the Spirit with people like this, not becoming hostile and cold, but we do it by learning to be like Jesus. There's a children's song that I love to play for my kids, and the chorus says, Help me be gentle like Jesus, for he was humble. Spirit, come soften my heart and help me be gentle like Jesus. There's a lot that makes us different. But Jesus has unified us through the gospel. And when we come together in unity, we get to participate in and epitomize the triumph and the victory of Jesus Christ. Unity with such diversity would be impossible outside of Christ. We could force unity by external non-essentials, by ethnicity, by worship style, by Bible translation preference. But Christ creates unity through him so that our unity is not rooted in what we agree upon, it's rooted in the fact that we are now one in Christ. And that means that even when it comes to doctrine, there's room for kindness and unity. If I really believe that God is working in the hearts and lives of people, then I can be patient as men and women and children learn and grow in doctrine that I may already be convinced about, but that you are struggling along in. I don't need to ostracize you. I don't need to belittle you. I can trust God's sovereignty to teach you and transform your heart just like he does mine. Christ creates unity. And so no matter what we are like, we are one body in Christ. We are no longer black or white or rich or poor or even young or old. There's one spirit, one savior, one God, one father, one hope. And in Christ, we are family, united together. And unity in the church preaches the glory of God in the midst of a diverse people united around Jesus. When you live in unity, you become God's ambassadors, ministers of reconciliation into the world to represent not our individual preferences, but to represent Christ. That's why Satan seeks so much to destroy unity, whether it's in a marriage or whether it's in a church. Because Satan doesn't care if you come to church. He doesn't care if you have a big building budget. He doesn't care if you read your Bible every day. He doesn't care if you preach the gospel to everyone on the street. If we don't live in unity, no one will believe us anyway. If we act like a bunch of self-centered loners, we communicate the gospel is fake. If we live for uniformity, we communicate the gospel has no power and that we don't believe what we are preaching. 
our evidence of unity that comes from the gospel is seeing the Spirit working in us. It doesn't matter how many songs we sing or how many right doctrines we have. If we don't have unity in Christ, we have nothing. But thankfully, God has given us the gift of unity, and he commands you to walk in it. There's another gift he gives. This is a gift of serving and not hoarding. In verses 7 through 10, we see that this unity that God has given the church also includes a diversity of gifts. And Jesus wants you to use your gifts to build up the church and to live on mission for his kingdom and to serve and not hoard them. We live in a culture that loves to hoard. That's why we have basements and garages that aren't full of cars or couches or people. They're full of boxes. And that's why when those places get full, we then go rent a storage facility out so that we can put more of our boxes in storage and hoard stuff. And most of the things that we're hoarding have no real intrinsic value at all. Not just because they aren't worth anything, but because you're not using them. My wife has a rule. If I have a shirt in my closet I don't wear for a year, the, the shirt goes out. It's gone. I don't get to hoard. So a couple of times a year, I'm wearing all the ugly shirts and t-shirts I can find just to make sure that I fit the legalistic standing of making sure that I've worn them at least once in the last year. But we can do this kind of hoarding with spiritual gifts too. As if in some way we could use up all of God's resources to us. Like the God of the universe who created everything, who has uh, cattle of a thousand hills, as if we could somehow outgive and outuse his resources. God gives us gifts of the Spirit not to be hoarded, but to use them, and to use them for two purposes, for the glory of God and for the benefit of the people in this room primarily. In the Old Covenant, the Spirit worked very differently, most often in a selective, temporary, task-oriented way. And we see this in Moses and David and Elijah, where God would gift the Spirit upon these leaders, but it was a temporary gifting for a purpose of accomplishing a function or for a period of time. But Ezekiel speaks of a day when the king of Israel poured out the spirit and it will flow out of the temple like a river for the benefit of not just some, not the Levites, not, not holy people, but for all of God's people. Moses speaks of a day when the spirit of God will be on all people, not just prophets. And of course, we see that come true after the resurrection of Jesus in the book of Acts when the Spirit is poured out onto all kinds of people. Spiritual gifts are a sign of the victory of Jesus. Paul quotes here Psalm 68, where God rises and defeats his enemies and brings salvation to his people for his glory. And then in turn, the people come to him and bring him gifts. But here, Paul seems to reverse the intention of the meaning of that, changes it, and says that, yes, Jesus gains salvation. He defeats his enemies. But instead of us bringing him gifts, what does he do? He pours out gifts on his people. The triumphant divine king redeems and rescues us and then gives us gifts so that we can bless other people. He shares the spoils of war with us. And when we don't use our gifts, we are not living in light of God's victory over sin. We model life that is still in the grip of the evil one. Because the evil one wants us to live in a life that uses all of our gifts for ourselves. For self-serving, for self-centeredness, for self-worship. And the Spirit calls us to use our gifts to walk in the victory of Jesus 
by serving others. Listen, not everyone's called to be an elder or a deacon, but we all have functions within the body of Christ so that the body moves and functions properly and correctly when everyone uses their gifts. Because you have been given a role and a purpose that God has only designed for you. And when you fail to do what God has called you to do or gifted you to do, the whole body suffers and the unity is at stake. We display to the world a different kind of kingdom when we use our gifts for others that loves others more than ourselves, that forgives rather than holds grudges, that serves rather than being served. And that is a picture of the gospel. The third thing we see here is there's a gift of equipping that's given to the church, not brokering. One of the gifts that Paul mentions is the gift of leadership. He says in verse 11 and 12, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. If you search the word pastor in the Bible, you will find that there is no role of pastor. There is not an office in the New Testament called pastor. That may be concerning for you because you are currently searching for a new pastor. You might be thinking, well, then what are we doing if there's no role for pastor? There, are, there is one role of leadership primarily in the life of the church, and that's elder. But there are several functions that Paul describes here, I think, that help us understand the kind of people that lead within the body of Christ so that we accomplish our purposes, and they are God's gift to us. What we often call pastor in the New Testament is really elder or presbyter or episcopos. That's the office. That's the title. And here, Paul says that he gives gifts, and the first one he mentions is apostles. And, and I don't want you to think of apostle as, as a, an office, like we think of the apostle Paul or the apostle Peter, but I think it's an office, of fun, it's a function, it's a character trait in which one ensures that the gospel goes from one context to another. They're constantly worried about how do we get God's purposes in the world. That's a way of thinking. It's, it's a, it's a skill set. It's a characteristic. Prophets are not people that speak authoritatively about the future, but they are passionate about God's will and pursuing holiness. They will be the kind of people that says, thus says the Lord, this is what we're to do. And there's no debate with them because all they care about is God's word, God's word, God's word. Evangelists are recruiters. They're always talking about Jesus, concerned about the lost, calling people to respond to the gospel. You know that kind of person. They're at McDonald's and they're talking about Jesus. They, they're on the golf course and they're talking about Jesus. They're, they're sitting on the train and they're talking about Jesus. Why? Because that's part of their DNA. It's natural for them that they just are evangelistic in everything that they do. And then we have these two other roles, shepherds and teachers. Everybody needs a good shepherd, right? Shepherds are nurturing and caregiving. They, they love the community. They're willing to sit in the hospital with you when you're giving birth or when you're dying. They're the kind of person that's going to come to you and pray over you. And teachers are the ones that explain God's truth well and help others to grow in wisdom and knowledge. All of these gifts are needed for the church to function. And some are needed more at key times and at key moments in a ministry life. Some are needed all of the time. But if you only rely upon one man in his one gifting to do whatever, everything that you need to have done in the life of the church, you are going to burn that person out and you are going to be dissatisfied. Because a, one singular pastor cannot be all of these things well. That's why you have a plurality of elders. Equal authority 
of men who lead within these functions. And why do these elders exist? Why do you have lay elders and staff elders and elders who are evangelistic and elders who are shepherding, elders who teach? Why do you have them? What Paul says is they exist, they're a gift to you to equip you for the work of ministry. Now that's scary for someone because you're like, well, I thought the pastor did everything. No, the pastor actually is here to equip and motivate you to do everything. If, if you are functioning well in the body of Christ, when you have your leaders, your elders together, your elders will have a lot of free time because they are equipping and releasing you to do all the stuff that needs to be carried out in the life of the church. But I know, I know this tendency because I've been where you are and I've been on the other side of this, where you're waiting for a new person to come in because you already feel exhausted. And you're like, well, when that person comes in, everything will get better. Now, he can do all of that. He can take the responsibility. He can lead. He can do it. But that's not what Paul says that they're gifted for. They're gifted to equip you. They're gifted to help you prioritize other people, to help you become evangelistic, to help you become humble, to help you build up the body of Christ. They're here to equip you not to do it. And so elders, if they're good elders, will meet with people all the time for opportunities for equipping. This is a great time. I love this time. I love Sundays. There is no better place I'd rather be on a Sunday than a church. I don't want to golf on a Sunday. I don't want to watch football or baseball. I don't want to go to the beach. This is the place I want to be every week. I love it. But this isn't the only place that equipping happens. And if you rely upon equipping to only happen here, then you are shortchanging yourself or the elders are shortchanging you because there are so many other days and times in your week. One hour, well, by the time I get finished today, 90 minutes, is here. You have 24 hours a day spent other places. And so equipping happens in small groups at a restaurant or over a cup of coffee or in a small group or in a home or in a hospital or it happens all over the place where the leaders of the church equip you. The problem is that most of us don't want to be equipped. We, we want people to, to be, we want our leaders to be golden-tongued preachers to get up here to, to speak and to encourage and to moderately entertain us. We don't want to be equipped. We want to go out feeling good and then go about the rest of our lives for six days and then come back and feel good again next week. But sometimes you need the prophetic voice to kick you in the rear. Sometimes you need the apostolic kind of voice to say to you, hey, listen, we're moving in this direction. If you're not willing to follow, then get off the bus. Sometimes you need the, the shepherd who's willing to come alongside you and to cry with you. And sometimes you need the teacher who comes alongside you and says, listen, you are not walking in obedience to Christ. You need all those people. Every disciple of Jesus is to be equipped for ministry and for service in the gospel. But understand what elders are not. Elders are equippers. They are not brokers. Elders do not broker your relationship with Jesus. Elders are not your high priests. You have a high priest, and his name is Jesus. But elders do not function in that role. Elders are not holy people. All of God's people are holy. Elders are not priests. All of God's people are priests. Elders are not the only one called to walk in obedience. Every qualification for an elder has been given in other places in the New Testament as a qualification for following Jesus in general. That's you. 
And the church is not a CEO. Too many churches function, right, where the, the pastor or the lead elder is at the top of the pyramid and, and he's the one that dictates everything and he drives the bus. But that's not how Paul envisions this. That a person functions with no accountability. There's to be a plurality of elders, a plurality of leaders who are working together in unity. But we also see a problem in a lot of churches where the elders or the pastors are not leading the sheep, but the sheep are leading the elders. Elders are not to accomplish the will of the people like a representative democracy. Well, Brooke represents this faction of people, and, and, and Keith Schwamm represents this faction of people, and, and so-and-so represents us back here in the corner. I like that system of government in our country. I love it. I love a representative democracy. I'm thankful for it. I'm glad we don't live in a dictatorship. I'm glad we don't live in, in socialism for the moment. I'm glad about that. But in the church, that is not profitable for us. Elders lead, like you, lead you like under-shepherds of Jesus Christ. And they equip you and motivate you to action. I, I loathe backseat drivers. And I have several girls in my family who now drive. And so I have a lot of backseat drivers always telling me what I'm doing wrong and what I'm, doing, what I'm not doing right and how I need to put my phone down, how I need to keep my eyes on the road and how I shouldn't drive with my knees. I, I don't like backseat drivers. And the church sometimes functions with elders with a lot of backseat drivers. A lot of people in the back of the bus who are dictating and telling the elders this is what you should do. But that's not how life is supposed to work in the life of the church. The new pastor, the new elders that you have, the leadership God has given to you, the gift he's given to you, you are called to listen to and to follow wherever they go as long as they're following Christ. And the minute they stop following Christ, then you abandon them and you find new leaders. But as long as they're following Jesus, you truck after them even off a cliff because they're leading and equipping you for ministry. And that's a gift. The last thing I want you to see is the gift that God has given the church is a gift of us, not you. Our natural tendency is to exalt ourselves, to focus on me, what I like, what I want, what I prioritize. Listen, I'm a pastor. I hear it all the time. People all the time want to meet me. They tell me what they want, what they like, how they think what I'm doing is not correct for one reason or another. And Paul wants us to reverse that. He wants you to be eager to put aside your own priorities and to say, how do I learn to love and prioritize these people? I realize that part of what makes America great is personal rights and personal freedoms and personal autonomy. And I think part of that is exactly what makes the gospel so hard for some of us. I don't think that they struggle with this as much in China or Russia. The individualism of America stands in opposition to the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Look how Paul describes the unity of the church at the end of the section. He says, we, all, unity, we, body, we, unity. Like, it's all the collective whole. There's no you there. He wants us in unity of faith, using our gifts, submitting to the leaders God has put over us, walking in unity to do what? To grow up together in mature manhood, grounded in doctrine and in the knowledge of God. These are things that cannot happen in isolation. You cannot become what God wants you to be on your own. You go, well, I'm not on my own. I'm here in this room with 50 other people. Yes, but if that's the only time you're with these people, then you function alone. 
Because what you're really saying is, I don't need these people for my own spiritual growth. I don't need these people to grow in maturity. I don't need these people for anything. They just sit next to me. Dwight Smith says the genius of true discipleship comes when the word of God in the hands of the people of God in cooperation with the spirit of God changes our collective hearts and minds. And the leaders of the church are to equip us to be others focused and to serve other people and to fight for other people and to hold on to other people so that we grow up together corporately. If our idea of the church is to come on Sunday and to sit a few rows or seats from everybody else and to leave on our own and not interact with anyone else until next week, we are not functioning like a church. Jesus did not die so that we could go on living in isolation. He didn't die merely for our sins, although he absolutely died for that. He died to build us up, he says in chapter 2, into God's holy temple. That's what he's doing. And when we prioritize our wants, preferences, likes, dislikes, instead of prioritizing and serving other people, it reveals that we don't really understand the gospel of reconciliation. We don't want a savior. We want an idol, and the idol looks like us. If we understand what Jesus has done for us, there's less jockeying for position, there's less getting upset when we don't get what we want, and there is more looking out for the interests of other people, counting others more important than ourselves. Listen, I know there is not a single person in the church I pastor who is struggling with over-loving other people. It's not natural to us. The natural tendency is for us to love ourselves most. That's what we all struggle with. And that's why we need each other. Because being around the body of Christ constantly reminds us, it is not all about me. Our church has a hard time remembering that. So we actually pelt them. We printed them on the back of our t-shirts. So that way, every time we walk around our church, people can see, it's not about me. I'm getting ready to complain about the music. It's not about me. I'm getting ready to complain because the pastor went too long. It's not about me. I'm getting ready to complain because someone didn't do what I want. It's not about me. It's constantly in our faces so that when we come together, we remember it's not about me. It's about you and about him. And that's to be our priority. Sanctification is not a personal endeavor. It's a community project. And the growth of every person in this room, young to old, is your responsibility. You are called to build up the body of Christ. You're not called to build up yourself. You're called to build up the body of Christ. So when we don't come, when we show up late, when we don't sing, if we don't want to serve other people, what we're really saying is I could care less if you go to hell, but because I'm saved, I'm comfortable. When we begin to see the church is not about me, but about us, it reveals something to a lost world that they can't comprehend. We display the power of the gospel and the goal of the gospel that God is not forming individuals, say, for his kingdom. He's forming a kingdom, a family of Jesus. And our role, our gifts, our abilities, our church membership is not about the joy or purpose they bring to me or whether or not I become mature or wise or knowledgeable, but it's what they do for everyone else so that all of us grow. Jesus is the one that holds this body together. It's not pastors, it's not elders. Jesus holds it together. Jesus gives the gifts. Jesus gives it the purpose. Jesus gives it the function. But when we all seek Jesus together, we function correctly. 
It's a miracle that Jesus could take a group of diverse people like you and put you all into a room and where you don't want to kill each other. That's miraculous. Because in our sinful state, that's how we are. Exactly what James says. We don't get what we want, and so what do we do? We, we, we hate and we kill. It's a miracle of the gospel. And growth to Christ-like perfection and maturity is not an individual pursuit. It's a cooperative effort that none of us reach until we all get there. The special forces of the military have a saying, right? No one is left behind. And the same should be true of Christian discipleship. If you run on ahead to growth and leave the rest of the church family behind, you failed. If the leaders of the church move on to maturity, but they don't equip you for ministry, they fail. Everyone in this room needs you to stand next to, to encourage, to stand in front, to drag others, to stand behind, to push others, to stand on the side and to cheer, to pick up someone and to carry them up across the finish line until everybody makes it home. Some of you don't know the unity that Christ offers because there is still hostility between you and God. Because you are still in your sin and sin leads to hostility with people. You're not a part of the family because you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. And maybe you think that you're religious or maybe you strive not to be religious at all. But salvation only comes to those who have placed their confidence in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And he invites you, like a good shepherd and evangelist, to look away from yourself, to cry out to him, have mercy on me, a sinner. And when he does, he connects you to a family. And at this table, there is always room for one more. Some of you, you've drawn lines in the sand regarding your preferences, but not the kind of lines that God would draw. You draw lines about preferences and priorities. God draws lines about the gospel. And maybe you need to confess and repent that you don't fight for unity at this church because you're too concerned about your own personal power, influence, or vote. Maybe you've stood by and watched conversations and actions of others tear people apart, and you did nothing. Maybe you were the one who actually stood in opposition to the gift of the unity that God gave to this church through words that weren't true, through actions that weren't loving, through priorities that didn't honor Christ. Maybe it's time for you to be humbled again by the gospel, to pursue gentleness and love and patience with every numbskull that's in this room. And there are many, but they're your numbskull. And they're your family. And they're your people. And God does not want you to set aside a single person in this room he wants you to seek unity. Some of you may not be using your gifts to serve other people. Maybe you've just become nothing more than butts in a seat that put bucks in a plate. Maybe you just want an encouraging sermon rather than to wash the feet of people. Maybe you want a pat on the back rather than to be an encouragement to other people. Maybe you want positions of power for your own glory rather than a position of service to Christ. Part of the reason you think like that now might be because you don't deeply and passionately and personally know Jesus. Because when you know him, it transforms your heart and mind to be a servant like Christ. Some of you have the gift of compassion. 
So reach out to those who are hurting in your church. Others have the gift of hospitality. So invite people into your home to eat and fellowship and to demonstrate what it looks like to be part of the family of God. It could be that those that you already spend time with on a regular basis, a mom who who needs a friend or a parentless, homeless child that needs a bed or someone who needs a gift of wisdom and scripture, that you have the ability to serve other people. The greatest gift that you have is not one that is used for you only, but it's used for the glory of God and to benefit people. So get off the bench, get off the sidelines, and start serving. Some of you might have an unbiblical view of leadership in the church, and you think that the leaders of the church are here to make you happy and to do all the work to be your yes-men. Your view of leadership is not based on Jesus. That's based on politics. Jesus is not president. He's not really looking for our opinions about what we think would be the best thing. He's not looking to focus groups. He's not trying to test the waters. Jesus is a king. And he has given you gifts of leaders, and they are here in times of comfort and to encourage you when you're hurting, but they're also here at times to kick you in the rear to get you going and to call you out when you rebel and to direct you to think more deeply and to love the lost and to encourage you to change direction when you're moving in the wrong way. What a gift. What a blessing to have in Keith and Paul and David and Ralph and Mark, and I'm sure I'm forgetting somebody else. Are you thankful to God for leaders? Are you making their job a joy? As they serve you, are you bringing them joy by serving Christ? And lastly, you know, some of you are only concerned about your own personal spiritual growth. I know, I used to sort of be like this. You read the Bible, you attend a Bible study, you listen to countless sermons, but you do it primarily isolated from everybody else. You are part of the sanctification process of every person in this room. Of Susan, and of Bob, and of Ellie, and of Nick. You are to serve and to invest in every single person that's here. You're to help them grow up into Christ. When was the last time you engaged someone? Not on a Sunday morning with a quick hello. When was the last time you sat across a table or a couch from someone and you just prayed or read or talked about life or cried together? Such a life practice does not happen merely through effort. It happens through the work of the gospel in you as you are connected to the vine of Christ and the Spirit of God produces more and more fruit in you. And what does that fruit produce? Humility, gentleness, patience, kindness, long-suffering. The more he transforms you in his image, it won't be evident merely by your deep intellectual or spiritual knowledge. It'll be found in your willingness to wait tables and wash feet and change diapers and to protect the unity of this church. I was born, I said, on December 23rd, 1975. And my Christmas and birthday presents sometimes get merged together. And because of that, there's a temptation for me sometimes to want to keep my gifts and to hoard them for myself. So when my wife gives me that six-pack of Coke with the Mexican sugar in it I love, I hide them so I can have them all. And when she gives me the candy, I make sure that I tuck it away in my room hidden so no, no small hands or mouths can get to it. I make sure that I keep all the stuff that's mine. 
I grasp it. I cling to it. I hold it. And it's easy for all of us to act like that. But the gift of Jesus, he doesn't give them to us to hoard. They're spoils of war. And the gifts of Jesus are reminders that the war has already been won. And that they're to be used not merely for us individually, but for us collectively and for the glory of God. He has given us the gift of unity, of spiritual gifts, of leadership. And he's given his church as signs of Jesus' victory over sin and a reminder that our gifts are to be shared, not for our own agenda, our pursuits, or our purposes, but to build up God's kingdom. It's hard to appreciate these gifts sometimes because our culture doesn't prioritize any of these gifts. But when we rightly see ourselves as messed up sinners like everyone else, when we rightly understand who we are now only because of Jesus, when we rightly understand the people around us are not just strangers or even friends, but they are brothers and sisters, pride will naturally diminish, humility will be cultivated, and we'll learn to be gentle and gracious, just like Jesus. We need to learn to seek to keep the unity of the body so that every man, woman, and child can have repeated opportunities to see the life-changing gospel in us and to be ready to hear it from us and to hopefully see them respond to it. I like receiving gifts. And Jesus has given us all kinds of gifts to be what God has called us to be, his ambassadors, his ministers of reconciliation. But you know, the greatest gift that God has given to us is not a what or a thing but a who. The greatest gift is not preaching or singing or even eternal life. The greatest gift is Jesus, who's forgiven us of all of our sins, who was patient with us when we were stubborn, who loved us when we were his enemies, and who gently served us when we didn't even realize we needed it. And Jesus fought for us, for the glory of God, and for the benefit of other people. And that's good news. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you know exactly what we need and the timing when we need it. We pray that you would help us to walk in obedience. We pray that you would help us to love you as our greatest treasure, but we pray that you would help us to learn to love people. Help us to learn to love every person in this room, not because they do what we want, but because they are yours. Not because they like the things that we like, but because they're our brothers and sisters. And help us to fight for the unity of the church, to not let anything get in the way, so that your glory would be made known, so that sinners would come to know Christ, and so that one day we can stand before you as good and faithful servants. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.